a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I know it's a choice. There are lots of different voices out there, many of whom will tell you things that you want to hear. And I hope you believe me when I tell you, I would love to tell you things that are soft and comfortable for your ears and that uh, put a smile on your face. And, and sometimes I do. At least I hope sometimes the things I share are things that are more uplifting than they are even informative. But yeah, there's a lot going on that uh, that needs to be acknowledged or at least needs to be uh, taken into account. And sometimes it's not so pleasant. And I, it's funny, I actually read a quote today from uh, Paul Rosenberg and, and, and I kind of felt stung because I went, ah, crap, he's talking about me. And it was, it was just this, if we spend our entire lives reacting to darkness and threat, we never learn to be a, a potent being. You understand what he's saying there? If we stay, if we, if we always are looking at what the bad stuff, if that's the first thing we gravitate towards, okay, what's, what's terrible that happened in the world today? We'll end up locked into our tight little shell talking about everything bad that happened. And even worse, we'll actually find ourselves looking for more and more bad news because that justifies having that shell in the first place. Now, at the same time, we need to be able to think clearly and independently enough to see the world as it really is and to be able to step up wherever we can to engage in leadership, which is simply using your influence wherever you are as wisely as possible at that moment. So my goal here today is less to uh, tell you this is here's the rest of the bad stuff that's going on in the world and more if you want to know what's my real motive here why are you telling me this stuff Brian it's because I want to help other people become a source of illumination for others in other words understand what's going on understand the reality of our situation but more importantly I'm trying to convince people to unleash their inner hero. And believe it or not, that's scarier for most people than the thought of, well, just tell me the bad news. I want to know what's bad that happened today so, you know, I can justify why I'm walking around with a grumpy look on my face. I know, there's there's a ton of stuff that, uh, it's it's a scary time. There's a lot of stuff that's in a state of flux. This is very consistent with the, the fourth turning methodology of how historical cycles play out. If you liken them to the seasons, we are in the deepest Almost darkest part of winter. The storm is here. It's getting worse. <clears throat> and it's it's scary because no one is exactly sure what the landscape is going to look like when spring comes. But, but I want you to take note. Spring will come. This is just a season that we're passing through. And it's looking like it's going to be a somewhat difficult one. Okay, we can, we can do that. It's been done before. We just have to have the resilience to, to be able to roll with it and, uh, and to, to make the most of it and most importantly, not compromise our deepest principles just for the sake of expediency. Because the people who really do make a difference during fourth turning cycles are the people who are absolutely committed to their principles and will not give them up no matter what. Now, on that note... I'm going to shift gears and talk about something that, that's a real source of irritation for some people. And that is 
elections. Now, I was watching somewhat interestedly last week. I mean, I was I was curious to see how Kerry Lake's challenge of the Arizona gubernatorial race would go. And the judge ruled against her, said, nope, you didn't show enough evidence. And I've seen a couple of different articles that say, well, they actually set an impossible standard of evidence. But there were a couple things that did come through loud and clear that I think cast some pretty serious doubt. Um, one of the things was that uh, in, in these heavily GOP dominated districts, ballots were printed improperly. In other words, they were the wrong size. And so when they were run through the ballot machines to be counted, the machines rejected them. Huh, that's very strange. But the crazier part was this is not the first time that they'd had problems like this. In fact, I think they talked about at least two or three other elections where this had been an issue. So the question that pops into my mind, well, why wasn't that fixed? And, And I don't have an answer for you, but I'm saying... That's a pretty big deal. Number one, people's ballots getting rejected. And number two, why was it primarily in heavy GOP districts where where this was happening? Now, is that conclusive proof that there was cheating and that, uh, you know, uh, who was it? Carrie Lake, you know, was, uh, was robbed by Katie Hobbs? I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. My, my confidence in elections has has been on the wane for a long time, long before there were claims, you know, of, you know, the 2020 election was stolen or, or whatever. I've always just kind of been gearing towards that idea of, you know, if elections really made a difference, I think it was Mark Twain who said the, then they'd have outlawed them a long time ago because our choices seem so limited. Well, you can have socialist candidate A or socialist candidate B. Which one do you want? Do you want to be shot in the head or shot in the stomach? Go on, choose one or somebody's going to choose for you. Well, what if I don't want to be shot at all? You, you have to play the game the way that we've explained it. By the way, anytime you do question the way that elections always seem to tip toward keeping the establishment in power, again, whether it's the Democratic wing or the Republican wing, the establishment still stays exactly as it is. But you question anything about it, well, you, Mr. Hyde, are nothing more than an election denier, which I guess is supposed to be a really bad thing. But uh, I'd... I'd rather be known as an election denier than live my life as a reality denier. Got an article here from Jay Valentine wondering if we have reached the end of free elections. Jay says, this week, leftists and rhinos admitted under oath they changed the print settings on election morning so Republican votes would not be tabulated on the most on on the one day most Republicans vote. And the Maricopa County judge said, well, it wasn't intentional. A Republican governor candidate who easily won by multiple points was denied her rightful election. Several million Arizona voters were disenfranchised. Not a word from Republican leaders, though. Now, that is interesting, isn't it? Jay Valentine says, wake up, America. Leftists and rhinos have spent the last 40 years transforming election machinery to end your right to vote. And they're just about to finish the job. This week, the governor of Minnesota took the lead by planning to register automatically Teenagers not old enough to vote. On election day, there will be tens of thousands of names with little history who can be voted by election commissions when needed. Democrats are proposing laws to make it a felony to question an election. Of course they are. Breitbart, Fox News, and about every other mainstream controlled opposition are cowed into submission. Jay Valentine says the election commissions regularly add to election rolls automatically every person using any state service, even if that person has not requested to be an elector. 
Your illegal migrant getting a welfare or dr- getting welfare or a driver's license can automatically be added to the state rolls. Ah, what could go wrong? And while this is happening, hapless Republicans claim to have found the secret to election victory, get better at ballot harvesting or gathering. Now, this is the Republican Party that should provide pushback against industrial-scale sovereign voter fraud. But he says, unfortunately, they see the problem of floating ballots. They do not see or they choose not to see the problem of ever-expanding voter rolls with people who never choose or never, never chose to vote, rather. Working with Mike Lindell, he says, we currently run the voter rolls for a dozen states and have the data for several more. In every case, the number of voter registration anomalies is from 5% to 18% of the voter roll. A voter anomaly? Yeah, try the 41 voters registered in a a hotel in Missouri. How about the registered voters in Harris County, in the Harris County, Texas prison? Examples so numerous, they actually have a website to cover them. In fact, he links to it. And he says, when most, probably all states have a float of anomalous voters from 5% to almost 20%, an election commission can control the election outcome for any close elections. And elections are mostly close today. Now, he says, we find sleepers. These are the silent voters who never voted before, even though they're on the election rolls for a decade. But when needed, they jump to life and vote. After the 2020 election, several states ran the query, show all voters. On the voter rolls, four years and more who never before voted, yet voted in 2020. The response, delivered with fractal technology, was in the hundreds of thousands. Nobody claims these were fraudulent. Neither can anyone claim they were all valid, particularly since so many lived in hotels, churches, prisons, and scores of other addresses which cannot house a valid voter. And this happened in every swing state. The one constant, they never win elections for a Republican. Go figure. Now, Jay Valentine says the fractal team and three state voter integrity teams in Nevada, Florida, and Wisconsin met late in 2022 after realizing that fake voters found by the hundreds of thousands in Republican and Democrat states when challenged were mostly kept on voter rolls. Now, I don't know if this is, you know, causing any, you know, little bells to go off or for you to say, huh, well, that's that's very interesting. Perhaps this merits a closer look. But I'm going to link to the article and I'll let you uh, decide for yourself if he has a point here. Look, I I don't really care. There aren't that many uh, Republicans that I'm really, well, really, there are no politicians that I'm particularly fond of. I don't end my prayers in the name of uh, Ron Paul or anybody else. But I am definitely concerned that uh, elections are not only being manipulated, but perhaps uh, gamed. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, so now that I've uh, got people riled up over the prospect of, is he talking about election denialism and so forth, isn't it funny the people in power really don't want you and I questioning whether there's any kind of problem with election integrity? It's it's like they, they are so worried. We might doubt that they are legitimate. And yet, uh, the... I, I want to tell you why this gives me optimism. This this actually, I think, is a very good thing in the sense that they're acknowledging that in order for them to govern, in order for them to represent us, they would use the word rule, but I, I did not submit to a ruler. I 
choose to help participate in electing, in electing rather representative government. But the consent is something that I have to give or can withhold. Yes, I understand they have laws. Yes, I understand they have men with guns and badges who will come and hurt me if I don't do what they say. But I do not have to freely give, I don't have to give them my consent. I'm not duty bound to give my consent to them if they are not actually representing me and if government is not actually being operated in its proper role. Oh, I know that sounds really, really radical, but that is the essence of proper government. It's accountable to the people. It operates within its prescribed limits. And it does not usurp authority that is not its, you know, actual authority to exercise. So never forget the power you have in the power of consent. And yeah, you know, I understand the system at this time is set up in such a way that, well, it punishes anybody who tries to to opt out. Oh, I've seen it time and time again. And yet there are many ways you and I can quietly withdraw that consent and go on living our lives, making our own choices, not waiting for permission from the state or anybody else to, to live a productive, happy life. You do have to be careful because sometimes there are watchful eyes looking for anybody who, who, is, who has uh, violated this jot or this tittle, you know, to, that we have to enforce on them. But I'm not going to ask permission to be a free man. I won't. Why? Because I'm a free man, for crying out loud. That's, that's why. Free men don't ask permission to live their lives. Now, they do have responsibilities that go along with that freedom. So, just so we're clear, this is not just a free-for-all. Oh, I can drive 85 miles an hour through a school zone, throwing beer cans out the sunroof and steering with my feet? Yeah! No. I have to be very cognizant of other people's rights, and I have to be respectful of their rights. I guess what I'm trying to get across, though, is I'm done asking permission. And just because some politician put words on paper doesn't mean that uh, my conscience is no longer necessary. I just have to obey. I don't, unless I agree and choose to give my consent and obey. I know, that to, you know, the funny thing is, saying something that, to me, that is just common sense. And I, and I would expect anybody to live their life by that, uh, by that matrix, but it enrages some people, and not not just the far leftists who want to be in control of people. There are people on the right who just ah, you you just want to be a law unto yourself. You're just a rebel. I think it's people with a controlling nature that really struggle with that. How dare you live without my license, without coming to me for permission, without getting my approval before you do anything? So much as crack a smile, and that's when I think of the words of uh, uh, Rick from Rick and Morty. Every breath I take without your, without your permission adds to my self-esteem. <laughs> I don't know. That's actually not a bad motto to, to live by. So let's talk about something optimistic here. This is an article by Edward Ring published on American Greatness. The Power of Political Optimism. Now, he says in, the 20, in 21st century America, optimism is subversive. So his advice is flaunt it. Deny the doomsayers their moment. Edward Ring says, there is a difference between optimism and naivete. In politics today, optimism offers conservatives an inexhaustible source of infectious power that can overcome and shatter the foundations of the establishment's fear-based version of populism. He says, indeed, it is naive to think any other approach has a chance. Optimism has insurrectionary power because it contradicts everything the American establishment now trains voters to accept. 
from uniparty conformists and their corporate academic and media allies who package and spread the messages to deep state agencies and plutocrats who decide on the messages, there's a common theme. That theme is pessimism. And when pessimism impels us to believe in worst-case scenarios, panic follows close behind. What else might explain every rote proclamation that the world is coming to an end because of the climate crisis? What else explains why millions of American children are coping with mental illness, suicidal thoughts, and hopelessness for the future? Well, they've been convinced the Earth is on the brink of burning up. What else accounts for educated adults utterly convinced that the planet may soon be uninhabitable? What else lends apocalyptic context to every report, a staple now part of all reporting on hurricanes, floods, or winter storms? Wow, he's right. Edward Ring says, It isn't merely the end of our planetary biosphere that's turned half the nation into compliant defeatists. Along with the climate emergency, we have a health emergency that now finds millions of Americans afraid to congregate, afraid to take off their masks, afraid to get a job or go to school. The currency of establishment politics in America relies on pessimism. What other word better characterizes the incessant claim that white Americans are by definition racist, that America is an inherently racist nation, and that BIPOC individuals, for the blissfully uninitiated, that's black, indigenous, and people of color, cannot possibly hope to succeed without government edicts and entitlements to compensate for pervasive discrimination inflicted on them by privileged white people. Edward Ring says the power of political optimism is that it rejects all of this. Burning fossil fuel is not going to immolate the biosphere. Forests are not disappearing. We can protect wildlife and wilderness while also remaining realistic about what sort of a human footprint is necessary to power civilization. Diseases and pandemics will strike, and with courage we can balance the risks, protect the weak, preserve our freedom, and exercise reasonable precautions as we build herd immunity and move from pandemic to endemic. We can methodically develop vaccines and treatments, but we don't need to compel people to take them. As for racism, only vestiges remain, as Americans have built the most inviting and inclusive culture in human history. That is optimism. And it's powerful because it challenges the establishment narrative at its roots. So in 21st century America, he says optimism is subversive. Flaunt it. Deny the doomsayers their moment. Reject the pessimistic essence of everything they're saying. Starting there, we have a chance. Now, he says anyone taking a hard look at what's happened to this country over the past 50 years can make the case that optimism is naive or futile. American culture has been under unrelenting attack. The values that made America great have been undermined, if not lost. The traditional family with children raised by a father and a mother is now denigrated as a vestige of the oppressive patriarchy. A work ethic, once considered the first prerequisite for success, is systematically being destroyed by the rhetoric of equity. A united nation, which for centuries had embraced the process of ethnic assimilation, in recent decades has been fractured not merely by massive new waves of immigration, but by a new message of division. For the first time in history, immigrants are not encouraged to work and assimilate, but rather to resent as racist the people who built the nation they've entered, and to fight to destroy it. Even the concept of what it is to be a man or a woman is questioned by the institutions we once trusted. In recent years, heartbreaking, unforgettable moments exemplify how far we've fallen as a nation. This includes images of howling mobs toppling statues of American heroes, the historic St. John's Church came within an eyelash of turning into a pile of ashes, 
as rioters assaulted the White House, nearly breaking through the fence. Rampaging mobs spent the summer of 2020 spreading a defiant message as they smashed and looted downtowns across the country. Stop resisting, elect our candidate, or we will burn this country to the ground. Major cities now more than ever are taken over by tens of thousands of predators, psychopaths, and addicts who are stealing, screaming, pooping, and shooting up in ruined public spaces that were once magnificent examples of a brilliant civilization. Now, I got to tap the brakes here because we are up against our own break. But I'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll hear the rest of Edward Ring's case for the power of political optimism. I also have a link to this in today's show notes, which you can check out at thebrianhideshow.com. If you'd be so kind, feel free to subscribe, and I'll send you a copy of those show notes each and every day that I do the show. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to our sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org and also LifesavingFood.com. I'm sharing with you an article by Edward Ring about the power of political optimism. And of course, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, you know I'm really not that keen on politics. But I do agree with his overall message, and that is optimism is a subversive act right now. Right now, we're supposed to believe, look, you're defeated. We are in control. We control everything. You know, the majority in this election, or at least what we say the majority was, has voted this way, and you are duty-bound to do exactly as we say. Now, my optimism goes beyond that. My optimism is, yeah, whatever. But he, he talks about, you know, the, the things we saw, especially in 2020, that, that really evidenced the violent just breakdown and overthrow of our culture. He says these predation, depredations rather to our nation and culture just scratch the surface. He says the madness that inspires them is fertilized by pessimism. An optimist would never condemn the traditional family or the value of a work ethic or the promise of assimilation or the immutability of biological sex. An optimist doesn't believe our cities have to be ceded to disorder or the compelling addicts to sober up is an inhumane and futile act. An optimist does not think that life is fundamentally unfair or that life on planet Earth is about to end because we've reached a catastrophic climate tipping point. This is the transgressive, revolutionary power of optimism. And not only does it unequivocally reject the fear-based premises of America's establishment uniparty, but it can inform a comprehensive worldview that sees a bright future for America and for humanity. Edward Ring says, in every aspect of global challenges, there are optimistic scenarios. Perhaps the biggest premise of the currently prevailing political establishment in America is that globally we are running out of resources and civilization as we know it is unsustainable. Here and abroad, this deeply pessimistic assertion is used as the moral justification for unprecedented assaults on every aspect of our lives. From freedom of movement to the retention of middle-class wealth and survival of small businesses, all the way to basic property rights and national sovereignty. Yet this premise is a deeply flawed and hopelessly pessimistic, agenda-driven distortion of reality. And he says it's easily debunked. So when it comes to choosing a better future, Edward Ring says, adequate water is often cited as the looming, inevitable, Malthusian check on humanity achieving universal prosperity. 
but technology already exists to recycle urban wastewater to desalinate seawater, engineer interbasin transfers from water-rich regions to water-poor regions, and more efficiently harvest storm runoff. Apart from mustering the political will to undertake these projects, the energy required to pump and treat water is considered by some to be the most prohibitive obstacle, but pessimism over securing adequate energy resources also rests on dubious premises. To begin with, conventional energy is not in short supply. Proven reserves of so-called fossil fuels at double the current rate of consumption are still sufficient to last about another 160 years. Unproven reserves of natural gas, oil, and coal are estimated, are estimated rather to be many times that. Energy abundance can also be achieved through advanced nuclear fission or nuclear fusion, factory-produced biofuels, or through improving photovoltaic technologies, satellite to solar power stations, or even direct synthesis of CO2 exhaust into liquid fuel. Energy scarcity is a political choice. It's not an unyielding reality. And while hard limits do exist on some of the most essential mineral resources, there are also tantalizing new workarounds and innovations to compensate for scarcity. Most metals can be recycled, even complex systems like batteries will be cost-effectively recycled once robotic technologies dramatically lower reprocessing costs. One of the most promising alternative building materials is cross-laminated timber, a mature technology that now is available to replace concrete panels and steel trusses and is already used as the primary structural building material in high-rise buildings around the world. Perpetual human innovation, whether it's cross-laminated timber or next-generation concrete using abundant desert sand or for low-rise buildings, structural blocks with cores of hemp or straw, or virtually inexhaustible new minerals mined from the moon and asteroids, will ensure that when the political and economic environment favors innovation, the collective lot of humanity will get better and better. Optimism is the prerequisite for everything good. It's the motivation and freedom to innovate, the courage to coexist in peace, the character to work hard and accept meritocracy, the vitality to stay healthy and sober, the judgment to balance the needs of the environment with the needs of humanity, the faith to believe in a bright future, the charisma to attract others to a joyful movement, and the enduring conviction that we will overcome this rapidly descending tyranny. Now, pessimism, on the other hand, catalyzes fear, panic, despair, and desperate fanaticism. Pessimism provides the fertile soil in which manipulative, ag manipulative agendas are planted, sowing guilt, resentment, hatred, and the dark comfort of extremist solutions to manufactured problems. Pessimism and the products of pessimism are the body on which evil festers and grows. Edward Ring says practicing optimism and professing optimistic perspectives on political challenges is the furthest thing from being naive. Optimism is a weapon, a talisman, capable of recruiting and realigning the American people to obliterate every diabolical schema and evil scheme that currently threatens their nation. So he says make it the foundation of your politics and wield it with the recognition of its power and enjoy every minute. I think that last line, enjoy every minute. I know this is kind of a broad brush that I'm about to paint with here, but here, let me dip it in the paint and away I go. The people who seem most determined to gain control over other people, they seem legitimately bothered when they see happiness. 
see us experiencing joy or or otherwise uh, being unfazed by their, you know, dour pronouncements that we're destroying the planet. And unless you hand control of the economy completely over to collectivist world leaders, you know, the planet is doomed. Doomed, I say. They don't like to see us smile. They think they do. They think we're naive if we're having, you know, if we're finding joy or happiness in life. What a sad way to live. First of all, with that lust to control other people. And secondly, with a blind eye toward the good things that life has to offer. Look, I I understand as well as anybody, there's a lot of ugliness to be found around us. There's a lot of sadness and there's inequality. And sometimes people do despicable things to each other. It's true. It's a part of our world. There, There are ugly things which do not align with our principles. And, and admitting such a thing is not admitting defeat. Therefore, there's nothing we can do. Of course, there's something we can do about it. But if we train ourselves to, to remember to recognize the good things, to see the beauty that's all around us, and it's not just for the well-connected, it's not just for the rich, it's for anybody who at least is willing to, to raise their eyes up from, you know, looking down, oh, man, everything is so bad. See the good around you. And I'm, I know this is going to sound Pollyanna-ish to some people. But if you can find even a few seconds just to appreciate the incredible beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. We had a really spectacular one last night. And, you know, I don't know why, but little things like that, that lifts my spirits. It reminds me that, you know what? The best things in life actually, at least for me, have nothing to do with politics. The best things in life have to do with I'm in the car with my wife and with my daughter and we're driving along. And by the way, my daughter's shoes smell pretty strongly of cow manure because she's been working with her 4-H steer. And uh, we're driving through the countryside and it's cold and it's windy. But my goodness, the sky has more colors and more uh, depth and and, uh, contrast because of that sunset than anything I've seen in a while. I know this isn't going to make sense to everybody, but that's the kind of stuff that brings me joy. Being with people I love, recognizing that there is great beauty if you're willing to look for it. And I think that's that's the key part, if you're willing to look. So I will echo what Edward Ring is talking about. Be optimistic. Not just in your politics, be optimistic in, in other areas of your life. If you're lagging, and a lot of people are this time of year, you know, with the, the the lack of sunlight, I get that whole seasonal affective disorder thing too. I, I feel the blues more keenly this time of year than pretty much any other time. But I also understand, as I said earlier in the show, this is a season. It's not always going to be this way. We will see some beautiful, green, sunny days not so far ahead. And in the meantime, it's the little things that really add to what makes life great. And by little things, I mean it's, it's, the, it's the relationships with the people around you. It's the opportunities to serve people. It's the kindness that's extended to you by other people who didn't have to, but chose to do it anyway. You start noticing and focusing on those things, and you know what? Oh, and, and step away from the uh, daily dread machine, the, the media, including this show, for just a little while, things start to look a lot more normal. Take a media fast once in a while. You'll be surprised at what it does for your disposition. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Got three quick articles I'd like to touch on in this final segment of today's program. And uh, I want to start with, uh, first of all, I want to start with one. Um, this is one that we're not hearing much about in the press. Although I have mentioned it a couple times on the program, and I, I still try to find as much information as I can. But are you paying attention to what's happening to the Dutch farmers? This is very disturbing. It's Their, their government is reclaiming or is taking over their land, basically confiscating their land in the name of trying to save the planet from nitrogen. And this nitrogen crisis apparently is just a, it's a bureaucratic muddled affair which is impacting all of Dutch society. But there are thousands of farms that are going to be taken away from farmers by their government in the name of saving the planet. I'm going to include a link to this article. This is from, let me see if I can get his name right here, Michael Amundsen. And it's asking the question, why the news block on the plight of these Dutch farmers? Ostensibly, their government saying, well, it's because these farmers, uh, they uh, inject liquid manure into the soil and the nitrogen, you know, somehow is damaging the planet. I like how uh, <laughs> Michael Amundsen says, he says, yeah, this nitrogen crisis has the waft of so much BS. I think he's right. He says, Dutch farmers are hip to when a nudge becomes a shove. The anti-meat ideologues want humans to subsist on grass cuttings and Bill Gates' lab-made gunk. But he says, Dutch farmers feed the world, and their plight is ours as well. I would add that if it can be done in the Netherlands, it can be done in other places as well. It's a, this is very much a first-world country. What would we do? If we saw control over food production being exercised like that here in America, that's a very dangerous place to go. Controlling food production is something political ruffians always want to achieve. And if you are not familiar with what happened in Ukraine back in the 1930s, in the Soviet Union, uh, if you don't know about what happened in Zimbabwe, what happened in Ethiopia, what happened in Somalia, yeah. Political power used to control food ended up weaponizing hunger. Very, very dangerous stuff. Now, there's another article that I'd like to point you toward. Um, this is, uh, you know, if, if you have been following the Twitter files, or even if you haven't, let's say, for instance, the Twitter files really haven't moved the needle on your uh, give a care meter. Um, I want you to check out the article from Jeffrey Tucker. This is from the Brownstone Institute. How an occupied Twitter ruined countless lives. And the crazy thing about this is, he says, you know, uh, from the beginning of the COVID panic, he says, it felt like something was really wrong. Never had a pandemic, much less a seasonal pathogenic wave, been treated as a quasi-military emergency requiring the upending of all freedoms and rights. And what made it even more bizarre was how alone those of us who objected felt until very recently when Elon Musk bought the platform Twitter, fired all the embedded federal agents, and started releasing the files. 
As Elon said, every conspiracy theory about Twitter was true and then some. And Jeffrey Tucker says what applies at Twitter pertains equally to Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, and all platforms associated with those companies, including YouTube, Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp. The proof is all there. These platforms colluded with the federal government's administrative arm to craft a particular COVID narrative, throttling and censoring dissidents and and boosting any credentialed expert who is willing to toe the line. So he says, at this point, it's wise to trust no one and nothing but those who fought against this nonsense. Jeffrey Tucker says, as the crisis began, I was blessed with an unusually large reach on most platforms, but I sat by and watched it dwindle to nothingness as the months went on. Yes, I had posts pulled, but I was never banned. It's just that my channels of communication shrunk dramatically by months and weeks. In the meantime, he says, I watched the population gradually fall into a medieval-style disease panic that tore families apart, kept loved ones from traveling, wrecked businesses and churches, and even violated the sanctity of the homes. This invisible enemy about which everyone in government was going on shredded the whole social fabric. And by the way, more and more, it is beginning to look like it was a man-made or at least a man-altered virus, meaning it was a bioweapon. Take from that what you will, but if that is the truth, if that is, in fact, if we can trace this to, yes, this uh, bioweapon research taking place in the Wuhan lab, whoops, got away from them, or perhaps was deliberately released, you do not want to have dealings with the kind of people who would do that sort of thing and then capitalize on it and make billions of dollars and, you know, mandating vaccines and so forth to people, which vaccines, you know, apparently do not prevent the spread or transmission of said virus. They're experimental after all. Yeah, it starts to look a little bit sinister, doesn't it? Well, check out Jeffrey Tucker's article. He, he makes a very strong case that uh, that uh, throttling of information denied people very credible facts that could have better enabled them to make decisions about how to respond to the pandemic. But the collusion between government agencies and private companies, especially the social media companies, this is looking more and more like a kind of psychological warfare, a psyop of some sort. And, and I don't use that term lightly. People say, well, are you suggesting that our governments have gone to war against the people? Well, that's sure what it looks like. Just because it's unpleasant doesn't mean that we should even consider such things. All right. Now let's take something a little more optimistic. Got a great article here from uh, Jordan Alexander. Why the mundane matters. And I guess this one jumped out at me because uh, unlike most years where I don't make New Year's resolutions because I know I'll break them, I actually have some resolutions. I see some things that I've really got to uh, get to work on in my own life. And so I'm going to be setting resolutions this year. And the secret to success comes with focusing on the little, seemingly mundane things. Here's how Jordan Alexander puts it. He says, As New Year's Day approaches, many of us are setting lofty resolutions. The humdrum of the everyday is easy to get sucked into, so the New Year is a refreshing start for many. It's a milestone to set some goals and focus on self-improvement. Now, while setting lofty goals is a laudable objective, looking at New Year's as a grand new beginning, a blank slate, overlooks everything else that happens in our life, all those little moments that make up everyday life. He says, each ordinary day, we make hundreds of little decisions 
and these actions make up the overwhelming majority of our lives. That's not to say that these pivotal moments aren't important, but we only th- if we only think about these instants, the rest of life will pass us by. Now he confesses, he says, I've been recently reading Jordan B. Peterson's Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, and in it, he shows how everything has symbolic meaning. One of Peterson's running theses through this work is that everything has meaning in it. You can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act. Peterson in 12 Rules for Life says you simply don't know what you believe before that. You're too complex to understand yourself. Each action we take is an outward representation of who we are in our hearts and what we believe. In practice, this means that those seemingly everyday moments deserve our attention. Now, while it's not worth obsessing over the little things, we can take heart knowing our everyday lives matter. Peterson, though, isn't the first person to observe this truth. In fact, it was stated about 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is Colossians 3.17. So for Christians, action should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. But he says more broadly, this means that our actions should strive toward an ideal, a higher purpose. Washing the dishes isn't simply washing the dishes. It may be a way to show appreciation to a spouse or roommate. Or it could be the path to breaking the procrastination habit. Or maybe washing the dishes is the one time of day you get to chat uninterrupted with your spouse. These are all things of untold significance. Just a few verses later, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Now, while this is an order, it can also be an encouragement. We should work heartily because God cares about what we do in our daily lives or because our actions have higher value and purpose. So the work we do each day must matter. And the meaning in the mundane isn't just encouragement, though. He says it's responsibility above all else. Suddenly, inconsequential actions are serious. Washing the dishes becomes a task with monumental implications. And it's not a responsibility shirked without consequences. What, what if, if what we do every day doesn't matter, then uh, why shouldn't we go around lying and stealing? See, dismissing the mundane is a turn toward entropy, emptiness, and evil. In other words, we can take heart knowing that what we do matters, but we're also warned that what we do matters. So he says, as you set your resolutions this year, remember those quiet, small moments, the things you do each day without a giant resolution. Even those small moments can be full of greatness. I don't know why, but I found that really encouraging. I hope you do as well. You'll find the article linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.